podcast dedicated to suspense, crime, and horror stories from the golden age of radio. I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. We love mysterious old-time radio stories, but do they stand the test of time? That's what we're here to find out. Last December, we each selected Christmas-themed episodes to listen to, and I chose an adaptation of Charles Dickens' other ghost story, The Signalman. The story doesn't inherently have a Christmas theme, but ghost stories are a bit of a holiday tradition in Britain. 23 years after publishing A Christmas Carol, Dickens published The Signalman in the 1866 Christmas edition of the literary magazine All the Year Round. It was part of an anthology called Mugby Junction, which featured stories about the rail lines that extend from that junction. The story was adapted by several series, including Lights Out, Hall of Fantasy, Beyond Midnight, and Nightfall. The Weird Circle adapted the story under the name The Thing in the Tunnel. Suspense adapted the story for radio three times. The first adaptation featured Agnes Moorhead and aired March 23, 1953. It returned in November of 1956 featuring Sarah Churchill and then again in February of 1959 featuring Ellen Drew. Last year we listened to the suspense version from 1956 with Sarah Churchill, who, in addition to being an actress and dancer, was also the daughter of Winston Churchill. Given how many adaptations of the story exist, I thought it would be fun to make a holiday tradition of listening to a different version each December. This year, we'll be listening to the earliest adaptation I could find, presented by Columbia Workshop in January of 1937. Columbia Workshop was created by Irving Reese in 1936 to experiment with new types of narrative for radio and to prove that CBS was committed to education and public service. Among the workshop's creations were a two-part adaptation of Hamlet and a 30-minute version of Macbeth, both presented by Orson Welles. Columbia Workshop was also the first radio show to feature the legendary Bernard Herrmann as the musical director. The impact of Herrmann's music on radio, film, and television is vast. He provided the music for Citizen Kane, Psycho, and Taxi Driver to just name a few. He introduced the theremin to science fiction. He provided the music for Orson Welles' War of the Worlds broadcast, and in 1939, he became the husband of famed writer Lucille Fletcher. But before all that, he was working for Columbia Workshop when it broadcast this adaptation of The Signal Man on January 23, 1937. It's late at night, and a chill has set in. You're alone, and the only light you see is coming from an antique radio. Listen to the sounds coming from the speaker. Listen to the music, and listen to the voices. The Columbia Workshop, under the direction of Irving Reese. Charles Dickens.
Say, what's the matter with the fellow? Is he stone deaf? Well, you were calling to the signal man down in the cut, sir. Yes. But he simply stands there and stares up at me as though I were a ghost. Oh, it's him as is the ghost, sir, in a manner of speaking. I wouldn't try jobs with him for a lunch pile full of shillings come Saturday night. Do you work for the railway, too? That I do, sir. Wiggins is the name. I'm a trek walker. Ought to be plenty of exercise in that. Yes, sir. Even nights I walk east. Odd nights I walk west. I'm just going on duty. And if you want to come along with me, sir, I'll show you the way down into the cut so you can speak to the signal man. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Oh, don't mention it, sir. I ain't no trouble. Right this way, sir. There's some steps cut out of the rock. Mind you, don't slip now. I'll be careful. You go ahead. I'll follow. Right, oh. You'll be writing this up as a story for the pipers, I'll wager. Who told you I was a writer? Nobody. But who else would be fool enough to go about risking his neck climbing down into such a place as the cut? Here's a longish step, then, Archie. Hold on to that branch. Right. Uh, uh, yeah. Hey, you seem to know this path very well. Why wouldn't I? I up to make it. Ten years back. Here's a loose stone. It rocks a bit. Uh, yeah. Me and Perky, you was me mic on the job at the time, figured it would save us a deal of walking. It's a rather stiff climb down. Uh, that it is. But it's the quickest way out of the cut. If you climb here, you've got to walk down the cut a mile below the town before you can get onto the road. Then you've got the mile back to walk. Uh, how about the opposite direction? To the west? Yes. Oh, you couldn't go that way, no how, sir. The tracks going west run right into the tunnel. Into the tunnel. Hang on, sir. Here comes the express. And she keeps the machine just a bit. Like sitting on the tail of an earthquake. Uh, does that signal man have to listen to that sort of uproar all day? About eight times a day, sir. Well, no wonder he didn't answer when I called to him. If he's been on the job a few years, he must be as deaf as a post. Oh, no, sir. His hearing's all right. He has to pass an examination every so many months to all his folks. Now, you watch it first from here on. It's wet from the water seeping out from between the rocks. There isn't much light, is there? No, sir. It's all is dark down here at the bottom. Except for an hour or two in the middle of summer when the sun is direct overhead. The rest of the year, you've got to keep the lamps lit on account of the walls being so steep and high. One might just as well live in a cave or a mine. Here we are. Find that puddle. Uh, uh. Well, I'll leave you here, sir. Just walk along the track till you come to the signal man's house. Well, you needn't worry. None about the engines running you down, and there won't be another one along for a bit. Oh, thank you, Mr. Uh... Wiggins is the name, sir. Well, we're two G's in it. Because you wish to mention it in your story. <laughs> I'll remember. Uh, what's the signal man's name? Braxton, sir. What sort of chap is he? No man on the line knows his work better. Does he mind having visitors? I shouldn't think so. He's always willing to pass the time of day, so to speak, when I come by. He talks. Dedicated, like he'd been to school. Or done a lot of reading in them heavy books without pictures in them. Is he old or young? Oh, it's hard to say about that, sir. 
Plus, he was middling young and middling old, if you know what I mean. His hair's turning grey about the edges, but he ain't got no wrinkles. What did you mean when I spoke of being taken for a ghost and you said it was the signal man who was the ghost? Oh, I was just a talking, sir. Just look terrible pale and death-like. Well, that's from living down here with no sunlight. And it being so damp and all. Just being in the dark and twilight all the time, do that to any man. Made his face white. Like, like the wax they make altar candles from. I see. Well, look here, mister. Uh, here. Here you are, Mr. Wiggins. Huh? This floor, sir. A couple of glasses of ale at the pub when you get back. Oh, thank you kindly. I'd be killed, sir. Thanks. <laughs> and thanks for your kindness, Wiggins. Oh, don't mention it, sir. Nothing at all. Good day, dear. Good day. How do you do? Mr. Braxton? My name is Darkin. I'm a journalist. I'm doing some articles on all sorts of odd things. You think I'm odd? Well, well, no, no, that isn't the idea at all. But your work is different and not many people know about it. I think it would make interesting reading. Perhaps. If you just answer a few questions. Why not? Why do you stare at me like that? Was I staring? Yes. You look at me as though you had a dread of me. I was doubtful whether I'd seen you before. Where would that be? There. By that red lamp at the mouth of the tunnel. What would I be doing there? I'd give a great deal to know. I was never there. I'll swear to that. This is the first time I've ever been down here. And I wouldn't be here now if a chap named Wiggins hadn't shown me the way. Don't you believe me? Yes. Yes, I believe you. But this time it was you who called out, Hello, below there. What do you mean, this time? Just that. This time. Why, yes, I cried out something to that effect. Not to that effect. Those were your very words. I know him well. Well, I don't remember, but if you say so, no doubt that was what I said. Why? Why? Yes, why did you use those words? Well, because I saw you below and I said, hello, below. No other reason? Dash it all, man. What other reason could I possibly have had? You had no feeling they were conveyed to you in any supernatural way? Of course not. Very well. But you must never call out those precise words again, sir. Never again. I beg of you. I don't suppose I shall ever have any reason to. So you may set your mind at ease, Mr. Braxton. Thank you. You probably think I'm a bit touched in the head. No, no, of course not. Uh, perhaps I am. It wouldn't be strange, would it, after all the lonely years I've spent at this solitary and dismal post? I suppose a man gets used to it. Used to it? Aye. Becomes part of you. I've been confined between these narrow walls for so long. I, I feel strange when I go up above and into the town. I, I feel insecure without them. Open to attack and danger from all sides. I breathe easier when I can descend once again into this cavern. I can understand that. They say that criminals who have been surrounded by prison walls for a number of years are practically panic-stricken upon their release. Yes. 
so I would imagine. My prison's in beautiful, and yet I have a strange affection for these dripping wet walls of jagged stone. I love the dim half-light. The eternal damp and the cold wind that comes out of a tunnel, and the rattle and roar and shriek of the passing train. I don't mind them. Did you ever read about St. George and the Dragon? Yes, of course. I sometimes think of myself as St. George. The mouth of the tunnel is the entrance to the dragon's cave. Every morning at eight, he rushes out for his breakfast. I can see his one gleaming white eye coming through the dark, growing larger and larger as he approaches. And like St. George, do you try to stop him? Oh, no. Although I could by hanging this red lantern on that post. He sees a red lantern and he stops dead in his tracks. And the ground shakes with his trembling. What does your dragon eat, Blackstone? I don't know. His feeding ground is somewhere out through that cut in the level country. He goes rushing out, throwing fire and smoke from his nostrils and rattling his metal scales on the tracks. Two hours go by and he comes roaring back into his cave again. According to the timetable, it's number 48 that comes out and number 32 that goes back, but I, I know his voice. The very same dragon. He comes out and goes back four times every day. He went out just a bit ago. Yes. I saw and heard him as I was climbing down into the cut. He's coming back any moment now. Put your hand here on the track. Feel that vibration? Now listen. Hear him? One day his great weight will break through the crust of the earth and the whole world will fall into the hole. His breath is so hot, it withers the grass along his path. You need to get away from here. Holiday anywhere. Your nerves are stretched to the snapping point. You'll have a breakdown. I can't go away. If I do, there'll be a death for someone. And I won't be there to stop it. But look here, old man. It's all very well to have a sense of duty. And probably there's a great responsibility on your shoulders doing this job. But after all, the man who took your place might be just as efficient. Efficient? Yes. But would he be able to see the ghost? The ghost who warns of danger? Would his eyes be able to pierce the dark and the smoke and read the warnings of the grey ghost who lives in the tunnel? What are you talking about, Braxton? Oh, you're shaking like a leaf. You're chilled through. And so am I. Let's go in your switch house and get out of this infernal wind. Uh, very well. Come. This way. a lot better. You've got a snug little place here, Braxton. Yes. I put a few more coals on the stove. Looks as though you've done some reading. Heavy reading at that. Economics, 
History? What is the kind? A French grammar and dictionary. Do you speak the language? In a way, sir, I've, I've studied it myself. I pronounce the word as, as I judge they'd be pronounced. That's very interesting. Are you a university man? Oh, no, sir. I've learned what little I know right here. Really? Is that for you? No, that's for the men at the other end of the tunnel. Here, take that chair, sir. It's more comfortable. Oh, thanks. Uh, just what are your duties, Braxton? They're very simple. I change the signal, trim the lights, and turn the handle on the switch now and then. No manual labor. Exactness and watchfulness are about all that is required of you. Yes, sir. There are many long hours when I have nothing to do. Uh, how do you pass the time? Through reading, studying, and thinking. It's a quiet life, sir. But I've got into the routine and it doesn't bother me anymore. It did at first. The first year I was down here, I used to climb up the rocks to the very top and sit in the sun when I had a free hour. But I gave that up. Why? And I kept listening for the sound of the telegraph instrument or the ring of the little bell they used to call me. It was on my mind all the time, you see. It wasn't much of a relaxation, so I gave it up. I understand. A little while ago, Braxton, just before we came in here, you spoke of seeing a ghost. Yes, I've seen it many times. And heard it, too. Has it spoken to you? Yes, When? The first time was just about a year ago. Yes. Come to think of it. It was just a year ago, this very night. What did it say? I, I was sitting here reading. And suddenly I heard a voice cry out, Hello, below there. Where did this voice come from? Uh, I wasn't sure, sir. What did you do? I started up and looked out of that door. And saw no one? Oh, I wish I had, sir. I wish I'd seen someone like you standing on the top of the cut as you did tonight. I suppose you thought I was ungracious when you first introduced yourself to me. I didn't mean to appear that way. It was because I was so startled that you would use the very word the ghost used. But what was it you saw that night? I saw someone standing near the red light to the entrance of the tunnel. Then the voice cried out again. And it seemed hoarse with shouting. Hello, below there. Look out. Well? Well, I caught up my lamp, turned it on red and ran toward the figure, calling, What's wrong? What's happened? Where? Did it answer? No, oh, it just stood there outside the blackness of the tunnel. I ran right up to it, but as I stretched out my hand to pull it at the, by the sleeve, it, it vanished. It was someone's idea of a lark. They ran into the tunnel. No, no. I ran into the tunnel, too, for a distance of 500 yards or more. And I stopped and I held my lamp high overhead. I saw nothing, save the numbers that tell the measured distance. The wet stains stealing down the walls and trickling through the arch. I ran out again faster than I'd run in. But dash it all, Braxton, in this day and age. I know, I know. I didn't believe then, either. I did go back to the office and telegraph both ways down the line. An alarm has been given. Is anything wrong? The answer came back directly, both ways. All's well. Surely that convinced you that the whole affair was a hoax, or else a figment of your own imagination? 
I can easily understand how it could have happened. That wind out there in this unnatural valley makes a wild harp out of the telegraph wires. And it could be mistaken for a human or inhuman cry of distress. Then the shadow... No, no, pardon me, sir. But that's not the end of the story. Oh? You see, six hours later, that same night, one of the most horrible accidents took place. Within ten hours, the dead and the dying were brought through the tunnel and passed over the spot where the ghost had stood. Yes, I remember that wreck. A frightful affair. Still, the appearance of your ghost on the same night may have had nothing to do with it. A remarkable coincidence. Coincidence? Yes. One that would make a very deep impression on you, or me, or any man. But remarkable coincidences are continually taking place. True. But the same coincidence seldom occurs twice. Rarely three times. And never, I believe, four or five, six or seven. You mean that the same thing happened again? Again and again and again. I said that particular accident was a year ago tonight. Six or seven months passed, and then one morning, just as the day was breaking, I saw the ghost again. Where? In the very same place. By the entrance to the tunnel. Did it cry out again? Oh, it was silent. It was leaning against the shaft of light from the signal lamp. Both hands before its face. Like this. Go up to it? No, I... I came in here and sat down, partly to collect my thoughts and partly because the sight had turned me faint. When I went to the door again, the daylight was above me. And the ghost was gone. What happened after that appearance? Another accident? Yes. That very day, the train came out of the tunnel. I noticed a flutter of white cloth. I saw it just in time to signal the engine driver with my flag. He put on his brakes... But the train drifted 150 yards or more down the cut. You ran after it? Yes, sir. As I ran, I could hear terrible screams and cries of anguish. Well? A young woman passing from car to car had stumbled and slipped down between. Her death was practically instantaneous. It was her companions who were screaming. They carried her in here. A second coincidence. There were others. I could name you half a dozen. But it's the past week that's on my mind... Every night the ghost has appeared, but nothing has happened. Every night? Yes, I... I thought you were... were he tonight when you called out. He always appears at the same place? Yes. At the danger light. What does he do? For the past seven nights, he's... He stood there with his left arm flung across his face. As though to shut out some horrible sight... The right arm, he waves as though to say, for the Lord's sake, clear the way. But he says nothing. Oh, if that were only the case. No. For many minutes together, he calls to me. Below there. Look out, look out. Look out for what? Oh, if I only knew, sir. If I could but learn what he's warning me against. What's the danger? Where's the danger? What can I do? Nothing, Braxton. Except wait for some further word from your strange guest. But don't you understand? There's danger overhanging somewhere on the line. Some dreadful calamity is going to happen. Why not do what you did the first time? Telegraph in both directions. But they believe that I was mad because I could give no sane reason for the alarm. They discharged me. What else could they do? Yes, I am mad. No. No, 
I don't think so. You're not well. You're sick in body and mind from being down here so long. And the responsibility of your post has got on your nerves. Oh, I wish I could believe that that is what's wrong. You've got to believe it, Braxton. I tell you what. I'll look up some doctor who specializes in nervous disorders. And you must come with me to see him. Would this doctor be able to explain the ringing of the bell? The bell? What bell? That bell. The one over my desk. The one that the other operators on the line used to summon me. Your ghost rings that? Frequently. Tonight? Tonight. During the last few minutes? During the last few minutes. It hasn't rung, Braxton. You mean to say you haven't heard it? No. But it's ringing now. It's your imagination. The bell is not ringing. And probably it has never rung at any other time, except when some station wishes to communicate with you. I tell you the bell... No, no, no. Not the bell. Ghost's calling. I hear nothing save the moan of the wind in the wild. He's standing out there by the danger light, calling to me. Hello, below there. Look out... Look out. No one is out there. When he first appeared, why didn't he tell me where the accident was to happen if it must happen? Why didn't he say how it could be averted if it could have been averted? And the second time when he hit his face, why didn't he say she's going to die and let them keep her at home? Why? Stop it, Baxton. Stop it, I say. Uh, If he did that just to prove his warnings were true so that I believe him the third time and the fourth and the fifth, why doesn't he warn me plainly now? God help me. Why doesn't he go with to someone with a power to act and the power to understand? Braxton, get hold of yourself. I believe. I believe. What can I do? What can I do? Listen to me, Braxton. Listen to me if you value your sanity. If you go on like this, you'll end up in an asylum. You must put the whole affair out of your mind. How can I do that? By realizing that you're an intelligent, painstaking, and exact individual. You've allowed a series of events to upset your balance until you're on the brink of utter collapse. You've got to get a grip on yourself. You've got to. For your own sake. And for the sake of your job. And the safety of those people whose lives depend on your performance of that job. I know. Do you think I haven't told myself that over and over again? But you've got to do something about it. Come. We'll walk down to the danger light and see what we can see. There's probably some very logical explanation for the appearance of your ghost. Some combination of light and shadow that creates an optical illusion. Come along, Braxton. I'll put an end to your ghost. If you only could. If you only could. Come along, Braxton. Come on. Yes, There's your voice, I'll wager. The wind moaning through those wires overhead. If you listen to that sound long enough, you might come to believe it to be a whole chorus of departed spirits. And there's your danger light, shining ruby and bright. Yes, I trimmed it just before you came. Do you see any sign of your ghostly visitor? No, he isn't there. See, without belief, he doesn't exist. I don't believe in him. 
There's no such thing as the supernatural. Therefore, he cannot appear to you. Here? No, no, not on the tracks. Over there to the side. But that's impossible, Braxton. You couldn't see anyone there. But I did. But you couldn't. It's too dark. The rays from the lantern don't fall in that direction. Nevertheless, I saw him plainly. Where you're always standing. He was here last night, as I told you. With his left arm flung across his face. As if to shut out some terrible sight. And waving the right arm frantically and, and calling, Below there, look out, look out. And you were standing where? On the tracks. Directly in front of the signal house. Very well, Braxton. I'm going to prove to you that you couldn't have seen him. I'm going to stand here on the spot you've designated. And I want you to walk down the track. Yes. Stop when you come to the place where you were standing last night. And then turn around and see if you can see me. Very well, sir. I'm going to teach you to laugh at ghosts, Braxton. This is the place, sir. Good. Now turn around. Yes, sir. Now, can you see me? Here in the shadows? No, sir. I can't. Well, doesn't that prove to you that you couldn't have seen anyone standing here last night or any other night? Yes, sir. I guess it does. And if you couldn't see the person, you couldn't see what he was doing, you couldn't see him wave at you or throw one arm across his face. No, sir. Braxton. Braxton. Neither can I, sir. The light on the engine picked him up a quarter of a mile away, and I whistled. There was plenty of time for him to step off the track. Didn't he make any move at all? No, sir. He was staring up toward the danger light at the entrance to the tunnel. I don't think Braxton ever heard the whistle. I put on the air, and I tried to stop, but you can't do it in, in that distance. No, I know. It wasn't your fault, Grayson. No, there wasn't anything I could do. I'm thankful I haven't got that on my mind. It got me upset, sir. You're not the only one. That journalist, uh, Darkin, I think his name is, is up in the hospital for observation. They had to strap him in the bed. I can understand the shock he must have had. My light picked him up just after I whistled. And he stood there, waving his arms at poor Braxton and yelling for him to get off the track. Didn't Braxton see him? He, he must have, sir. That's what I can't figure out. His back was turned my way, and he was staring right up the track toward the tunnel. And this other chap. That's odd. Yes, sir. Just as the engine hit Braxton, this writer chap threw up his arm across his face. So he was trying to shut out the sight. But he kept waving the other arm, frantic-like. Terrible accident. One that I won't forget in a long while. The train drifted into the tunnel for a few hundred yards before it could stop. 
But I'll never forget that writer chap's face as they passed. It was white as death. Standing there by that danger light, he, he looked just like a ghost. He was just there. But he was still calling, Lola, look out! Look out! Look out! Columbia Workshop has presented The Signal Man by Charles Dickens. Tune in next week at the same time for another workshop presentation. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. That was The Signal Man from the Columbia Workshop from January of 1937 here on the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast. Once again, I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. And that was Tim's selection. This is year two of the tradition. Yes. So I guess it's officially a tradition. Last year, you, as you said in the intro, you brought us a signal man. I got to say it's Signalman. Because I know. when you say Signalman, it's like an electric villain. Right. Or electric company character. <laughs> or the lawyer, Morris Signalman. <laughs> right. Or that. But you brought this last year, and as you discovered, as you said in the beginning, there's uh, so many versions of this, and it's such an interesting story to retell every holiday season about Dickens writing this and where it comes from and the tradition of ghost stories in England. I just think it's a really cool thing that we do this every year. I will say this, that I'm really torn on which I like better this year's or last year's. There's a lot to love going on here. Yeah, I, the, one of the things I was so delighted by in this, because I, I basically just chose, like, what is the earliest version I could find? That was my criteria. And they're so different, really. Neither one of them really varies that much from the main story. But the points at which they veer from the story, they do in a similar way. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting as well. I wonder if Suspense had heard the Columbia broadcast, you know, 15 years earlier. For those, uh, me, who have not read it, where does it veer from the original Dickens story? What are the moments? The way the ending unfolds is different. Uh, the end result is the same as in The Signalman dies from being hit by a train in the original story and both versions we've listened to. But in the original short story, the protagonist does not really have a specific motivation for calling down to the signalman. It's sort of a, a mystery. Both of the versions we've listened to on the podcast, the protagonist is a writer and is motivated mm -hmm. to go down and interview the signalman. Part of that is the, the original story is part of an anthology, which all these stories are a single narrator, sort of his adventures on the rails, mm -hmm. where there's a, a larger sense of who that narrator is, just the sort of wandering person who encounters things and is a little characterless. I, I haven't read the whole thing, but... That sort of anthology idea where this is pulling a specific story out where it'd be weird to just have this guy who wanders around. Yeah, I think it makes sense for a radio adaptation to do that. I just thought it was interesting that they chose the same thing. A writer mm -hmm. doing an interview. And I know at least from the Lights Out version I've heard, and I think that is also a reporter or a journalist. Of Way to guy. ruin Christmas 2019. <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, though, as the motivation of narration and viewpoint, because I don't remember last year's specifically what was said and done, but in this one this year when he says, well, I think our readers will find that very interesting. You sit down here all day and you do this and this job because he's like, why would you want to interview me? And I love that because, yes... Why would he not say, why would you want to interview me? That's weird. And yes, the reporter from someone who tells stories for a living, which we all do, that 
Yes, I, I don't think you're aware of how interesting that is. So I think it is a great way to tell this story through the eyes of a reporter. And the character last year had the additional motivation of this fear of trains. Of, oh, right. Um, uh, traction revulsion to trains and was kind of terrified of them, but wanted to overcome that. And that mm-hmm. was part of the impetus to go talk to this person who lives there with trains. I will say there's something more terrifying about last year's. And I think it has to do with I, um, I, I got to be careful on this because I don't mean it to sound like it's not. There's something more terrible about it being a female that is warning him to get off the tracks. And I don't know what that is. The the hallucination of seeing her before she ever arrived. Uh, there's a woman and she's screaming at me. And in this one, it's a man, right? Yeah. But there was something more terrifying about that. There's something just a little different about the relationship in the uh, the suspense one. That mm-hmm. I feel like the, the single man himself, we had talked about it on that one of, of this sort of heartbreak over this person who was clearly very intelligent and studied and he was there was this whole world of a person in here that no one ever talked to or really saw Mm -hmm. or knew anything about that that's touched on in this one but it's not i think as highlighted the emphasis in this one is that the signalman might be losing his mind yeah and that's part of the original story but they hit it a little harder here and Mm -hmm. i can't tell if that's because it's the theme that interested them or if they were padding it out to reach 30 minutes, because it's a pretty brief short story. So in this version, we have the whole sequence before the signalman starts talking about the specter he has seen about his delusions about the train, and he's seeing himself as St. George, George, and the train is the dragon. It's really cool, but I wrestle with it because I'm such a fan of the original short story, and I am trying to separate the short story and go, does this radio show work? From a perspective from the short story, it struck me as possibly undermining the signalman's story because when he's talking about the dragon and the train comes by and he loses it and almost kind of cackles and it makes you doubt everything he's saying after the fact. But that might make it better as a standalone radio show without the knowledge of the short story. So I can't really critique it other than doing the nerd thing. Like, well, that's different from the story. Uh, And what I do like about the St. George and the Dragon is that it foreshadows the signalman's book reading. He's well-read enough to make that comparison. And again, I don't know anything about the original short story. So, and I don't remember last year's very vividly, but I love the way that we are set up to understand, once again, the concept of isolation. Was it last week with the... Uh, study and Wax. Study and Wax. Yeah. yeah. And we talked about isolation. And the way they set it up here is how difficult it is to walk down this embankment. And then being told, well, you go from the east and it's a mile and a half. You can't come from the west. You can't do it. This is really the only way down here unless you want to spend, you know, six days or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah. um, and how difficult of a traverse that yeah. was. Meaning that... No one ever comes to visit him. Mm-hmm. There's no accident of visitation. It's hard to get in and out of there, which then I believe sets up really well and really well acted, by the way, of watching him, hearing him, I should say, go crazy. The psychosis of this, as you said, seems to be the focus of this. And uh, I really love that. They earn it with the walk down the embankment. Yeah. This is a and they, this they is a hermit. Follow that up with when he's talking about Later, when he first started the job, he would go up and sit in the sun for a little bit, but mm-hmm. he got too anxious about the bell, so mm-hmm. he, he stopped going up there, and now he just lives down in this pit. 
Yeah. It's kind of a hint of like Stockholm syndrome. He has come to, <laughs> to love his shack and his tiny enclosed mm-hmm. space and the cutting that he dwells in. Uh, I think it was interesting to add Mr. Wiggins, which is an addition from the short story that basically provides the exposition yeah. in place of narration. And I think yep. it's well done. Wiggins sounds like a very Dickensian name, so <laughs> it works really well. And the fact that the protagonist is a journalist, he can ask all these questions, mm-hmm. and it doesn't feel stilted as they're climbing down into the cutting. It's also an interesting contrast between the way this one handled the bell that the journalist mm-hmm. couldn't hear versus last time. In the suspense version, there was a little back and forth of, maybe he has better hearing than I do. Maybe I can't hear the bell. Mm-hmm. He was like, there is no bell. You're mm-hmm. hearing things. And I think what's interesting about both these adaptations is they attempt to explain away the supernatural, more so this one, in that we could believe that the signalman has just imagined all this. And in the journalist's attempt to help him, he just 100% inadvertently recreated mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the circumstance. And I that always... there's absolutely zero supernatural involvement. And that's not the case for the original story. Oh, but I think really? it's a tidy little bow for a radio adaptation. I just assume that's what the point of the story is. In the original story, the narrator suggests that maybe he should take the signalman to a doctor of some kind, and then he'll be back the next day. And he comes back to find people on the track and a a covered body on the tracks. And that while he was away, for reasons we don't quite understand, the, the signalman walked out on the tracks and was hit by a train and in the story version, it's the conductor of the train who's telling the story, and he's the guy who duplicated the gestures of the specter ah. from inside the train engine. Mm-hmm. And so we don't know why the signalman was compelled to come out on the tracks and why this happened. So it leaves a big question mark on what really happened here. Yeah, In that sense, it's just not a traditional ghost story. I mean, it's up for debate whether it's even a ghost story. Well, to me, I think like the heart of the horror in this and a lot of Victorian ghost stories is this frustration and inability to communicate. There's this ghost who's trying to tell the signalman something. And there's this great passage, and they use it directly um, from the short story in this version, um, when the signalman is in the depths of his frustration, says, why not tell me where the accident was going to happen if there was going to be an accident? Uh, Why not tell me how it could be averted instead of these cryptic (laughs) gestures? And, you know, he also asks, like, and why tell me? Of all people, I have no power. I live in a shack. Yeah, he's just to suffer the consequences, but he can't affect the outcome. And a lot of these ghost stories that I really like, they leave things unanswered this way. And the horror is that I am being warned or maybe threatened, and I don't know why it's me. I don't know what's Mm -hmm. happening. In some ways, it's like when your animals get spooked, your pets, (laughs) right? And you're unnerved because you share this physical world with them, but you're not part of this bigger sensory world that they're a part of, that they can hear more, see more, smell more, mm-hmm. but they cannot fully communicate that world to you. And that seems a lot like these ghosts. <laughs> they're part of this supernatural world, and they're attempting in whatever weird way to communicate this real thing. And you know it's real, but you can't talk. So this ghost is trying to say, I've swallowed a quarter. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to poop. <laughs> uh. I find this to be such an interesting story. I'm uh, glad, because there's like... 
yeah. eight more of these coming. <laughs> right. I find that interesting that there are so many adaptations of it. Because if I had been handed this and read it, yeah. I would go, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm also very fascinated by how fascinated everybody is with it. It's a good story, but overall, it's not that great. <laughs> I don't know what I'm it, trying to say. It's so open to interpretation that yeah. I can see the attraction for people who want to adapt it. I also think there's a certain contrast between this and A Christmas Carol, which again, going back to what I was saying about cryptic, opaque yeah. messages, that's the opposite. There's A Christmas Carol where the ghosts come and tell you exactly what you've done wrong, <laughs> right. show you what you did wrong, show you what's going to happen if you keep doing things wrong. I mean, it's like a direct message and it's a, it's... The anti-Christmas Carol. But I think and the for story... for 1937, this is also technically yeah. quite well done. Yeah, extremely yeah. well done. Yeah. I'm just saying the story itself, yeah. by itself, is not that interesting of a story for me. It does feel like it, it, this is a 15-minute story. Well, as Joshua said, it's a short story, yeah. and, and they're struggling to get 30 minutes yeah. out of it. I, it's uh, contemplatively told, yeah. Yeah. I think I appreciate the suspense one more because they found more clever ways to fill the time and to update it. But I also really enjoy this one because it is closer to the short story. And I just love this era of ghost stories, the Victorian era. Mm -hmm. And they are a lot of vague question mark ghost stories. I love M.R. James. I love Screaming Skull. Who's the author of that? He writes a lot of ghost stories in the same I vein. can't believe I can't think of the writer of that. Damn it. I just memorized 800 pages, uh, not the author. Another classic right moment of this podcast with three <laughs> middle-aged men trying to remember something. <laughs> uh, more than 100 years ago? I should know that. As we throw this to the vote, I'm going to restate what I'm stating. I like this a lot. I think it's classic. I think it stands the test of time. I think last year's did too. I think that radio drama made this interesting but the actual dickens story you haven't read it <laughs> no but i mean don't just the, judge it if you haven't read it just the premise of it i'm saying it's it like is. 1937 eric going it has trains in it i can do a train sound we're making it <laughs> it's true because <laughs> that opening is fantastic oh, before yeah. they've even said the signalman where they just go the hello down there yep. and the train comes rushing in but those are all the things the story itself wasn't great the I moments are every I moment just, is great there's yeah. an unexpected synthesis that works very well of this sparse victorian ghost story and what was the time modern radio storytelling mm -hmm. combined to create this really unique thing that i i agree it worked really well f marion crawford Thank you. Matt's who wrote The Screaming Skull and The Upper <laughs> Birth and a lot of other classic Hey, Marion Crawford deserves respect. Vote? Uh, yes. I would say that it definitely stands the test of time. I don't think it's a classic. Uh, I think it's a real historical interest for all the reasons we already said. I thoroughly enjoyed it, but I am also biased because I'm a huge fan of this short story that Eric doesn't like, even though he hasn't read. <laughs> Just the premise of it. Doesn't have a lot of meat. Uh, I agree, actually, with both of you that uh, it is not necessarily classic, which is not a shortcoming on its own part. It established this incredible tradition. It's part of the Columbia Workshop, which did all these amazing things. It's just that what was to come in the world of audio drama was so much more. But it is remarkable. And it is remarkable for the reasons, I think, that Eric said of uh, this combination of Dickens and audio drama innovation that made mm -hmm. this 
fantastic thing. So it stands the test of time for me and is definitely of historical interest for all that was to come still. Beautiful. All right, Tim. Tell them stuff. Please go visit ghoulishdelights.com. You'll find other episodes of this podcast there. And it's a great way to get a hold of us. You can leave comments on episodes. You can uh, type little messages to us on our contact page. You can link to our Facebook or Instagram account or Twitter and talk to us that way. And there's also information about that our live shows because we do live shows. And I will update that information soon because sometimes I fall behind on that. But... <laughs> We're going to let that slide. <laughs> you can also go to patreon.com slash the morals and support this podcast. Uh, we have all sorts of great rewards uh, for becoming a member of the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society. You can also support us by going to iTunes and write a review. Or you could just repost the same review you wrote last Christmas. Just like the signal man. <laughs> as long as it's got five stars, we don't care. <laughs> and if you're in the Twin Cities area, Minneapolis, St. Paul, on New Year's Eve, uh, or plan on being there, please go to website and look at a link for the bash cancer bash it's at the wabasha street caves event center where we will be performing an episode of the shadow uh that was originally broadcast in 1939 on new year's eve called the man who murdered time there's all sorts of entertainment going to be there that night though not just us live music and stand up and there's a booze, and it's going to be a lot of fun. And all the money goes to uh, Eric. Cause. Right, yes. <laughs> None of it goes to any of us. It's all going to uh, cancer research. So uh, that would be a way to come uh, check us out and have a great time for a good cause. Uh, what's coming up next? It's you. Well, I got the next one. All right. Uh, so next time, we are digging back into the... CBS Radio Mystery Theater, and we're going to listen to an episode called A Holiday Visit. Until then... Look out! Screaming Skull, who's the author of that? Well, I don't remember.